Happy Saturday, everybody. We are continuing our October classics with a bit of an unsolved mystery from previous hosts Katie and Sarah. This is Spring-Heeled Jack, who was a strange assailant who terrorized London and the surrounding communities in the 19th century. It's a story I was not familiar with until listening to this old episode of our show (laughs) to decide whether to put it as a Saturday classic. And this episode originally came out on October 18th, 2010. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And it's getting closer to Halloween, so we're getting a little bit spookier in our series. Sarah had a really good pick for today. Well, and this is a popular listener suggestion, too, so it's not exactly my pick. But in the late 1830s, London and its outlying villages, places that are suburbs now, were apparently terrorized by this mystery assailant. And sometimes he was dressed as a bear or a devil or dressed in a coat of armor. And he tormented his victims, who were usually young women, by tearing at them with sharp talons, sometimes shooting flames at them, and then he would escape with great agility across the countryside. And that agility earned him the name of Spring-Heeled Jack, which is something people eventually began to take literally, like he was running around in these shoes with giant springs on the bottom. But he made such an impression on people across the country that other mystery attacks 10 years, 40 years, even 70 years later were chalked up to this spring man who grew even more fantastic as the decades went by. Yeah, and he started to appear in penny dreadfuls, which were the best Sh- phrase. It makes me so happy. <laughs> it's uh, cheap, lurid fiction, I guess. Which makes me less happy, but penny Still, dreadfuls is the name of our next imaginary be band. fun to read through. And he took on this folklore persona too, this wronged aristocrat who was inflicting vigilante justice. And if you look at pictures of Jack from the 19th century engravings, of course, he looks a lot like a proto-Batman. And I'm kind of wondering what sort of inspiration, if any, he had on the creators of Batman. I mean, he's got the scalloped black cloak. He has black boots. He flies and jumps. Well, and you and I saw the Batmobile on Monday. We did Kathy's uh, car collection at Chick-fil-A headquarters. So that's. So I like to think there's a yeah, connection Yeah, things here. are coming together. But then Spring Hill Jack mostly faded from memory. He was replaced by these, you know, more generic ghosts and, and boogeymen like we think of. But in 1961, this story kind of gets a second wind when it's used as an example of pre-space age UFO visitation in a magazine called The Flying Saucer Review. Seriously. Which, you know, I mean, if you want to buy us a subscription for Christmas, <laughs> you totally could. But since the 1980s, the subject of spring Hill Jack has been seriously studied by one man in particular who's named Mike Dash. So the legend is obviously huge, but was there ever a real spring Hill Jack? And what was he? So... Just to give you some bearings before we launch into this very mysterious... Before we spring into Spring into the story. (laughs) Uh, Our subject today could have been an alien, at least according to Flying Saucer Review, a supernatural being, a nobleman carrying out some sick terms of a bet, a series of copycats feeding off of a rural rumor, or... 
just an urban legend. And Sarah was saying that the cool thing about this story is that even if you walk away from it believing that nothing happened at all, it's still really interesting to take a look at the urban terrors and hysteria in the 19th century. Like if you if you think about ours, the the, the Satanist cults at daycares thing that was going on. Was that in the 90s? I think so. Yeah. We had no spring-heeled jack, but if you were back in England at this particular time... to look time, at weird stuff that happened. Exactly. This is what you would be worried about. But first, we're going to tell you a little bit of a ghost story. So our scene is set February 20th, 1838. It's less than a year into Queen Victoria's reign, and we're at Bearbinder Cottage in Old Ford, which is just east of London. So Jane Alsop, who's a young woman who lives with her parents, hears somebody ringing the bell at her family's front gate. It's a little late for visitors to be calling. It's about a quarter to nine. So she goes out and sees the man and asks him what's wrong and could you please stop ringing the bell so loudly. And he says, for God's sake, bring me a light, for we have caught Spring-Heeled Jack here in the lane. So she hurries in, she grabs this candle, and she hands it to the man who thinks she thinks is a policeman, but that's not what she sees. At that point, he throws off his cloak, holds the candle up to his chest, and it illuminates this horrible face with red eyes and a helmet and tight-fitting white clothing. And then he shoots blue and white flames from his mouth and grabs her, starts to tear at her clothes and her skin with his metal claws. And somehow she escapes from him, and she runs to the door of her home. There he grabs her again, keeps on ripping at her hair and tearing at her clothes. Finally, one of her sisters opens the door and saves her. So that sounds completely terrifying. Yes. Even today. And this is the first firsthand account of spring Jack, which was published in the Times of London. And the story was followed up by two investigations, one by the newly formed Metropolitan Police and other by a for-hire detective, James Leah. Who's considered one of the most famous early detectives. But Jane's account was almost entirely backed up by her family as well as other witnesses. So she was believed to be an entirely credible witness, at least for most of the story. Yeah, someone, I think, was it her cousin who said there was no no was flames? A neighbor, yeah. So the one sort of major contested point, a neighbor said, yeah, I definitely didn't see any flames, even though, you know, I heard someone ringing at the bell. But the rest of the creepiness Everything happened. seemed to add up pretty well. Um, but that's not where our story is going to start. Because months before Jane's attack, rumors of a mystery assailant had already swept through the countryside. And they started in Barnes, a village southwest of London, in September 1837, where a, quote, ghost imp or devil was believed to be attacking mostly women. And over the next two months, there were reports from more than two dozen other villages of a similar phantom. So... The story spreads. Of course, it's exaggerated. Maybe it was all made up. Serious newspapermen and police who looked into these tales couldn't find anyone who would actually admit to having seen the assailant. It was more like, oh, my gosh, yes, I've heard, you know, you should go ask Sarah. And then Sarah would say— Come to me, I'd say, oh, uh, I haven't seen it myself, but— go see old Joe down the road. <laughs> what about me, Sarah? You could have asked me about the imp. I can't send him right back to you, Katie. So 
So it seemed like everybody had heard of this ghost, but nobody had actually seen him. And uh, the other thing, they'd look into some of these accounts and they'd find that sensational stories had pretty normal sounding causes. You know, they were seeing a mounted policeman or something. It wasn't Spring-Heeled Jack. But still, it seemed like something had been happening because by January 1838, the Lord Mayor himself of London made public a letter he had received from, quote, a resident of Peckham. And this was published in the Times. Some individuals of, as the writer believes, the higher ranks of life have laid a wager with a mischievous and foolhardy companion, name as yet unknown, that he durst not take upon himself the task of visiting many of the villages near London in three disguises, a ghost, a bear, and a devil. The wager has, however, been accepted, and the unmanly villain has succeeded in depriving seven ladies of their senses. Okay, so... This is putting forth this wager idea, and sketchy rumors start flying all over the countryside. But possibly something really is going on here. I mean, if the Lord Mayor thinks that it's worth publishing, you never know. The gentleman in disguise story seems half plausible. And then in February, we have have our first firsthand attack, which is the Jane Alsop story from earlier. Um, in that case, the principal suspect is this carpenter named Milbank, who's a squat man. He doesn't really match the description that Jane gives of her attacker, who's this imposing, enormous fire breather with a helmet. But Milbank admits to being so drunk at the time that he can't remember what happened. Oh. <laughs> and Jane and her sister are both very adamant that the assailant was not drunk. So when how would he be a fire breather if he was? Well, and that's the other thing. If we're gonna if we're gonna take the fire breathing seriously, it's very dangerous to do fire breathing if period. Unless it's absolute calm. Right. Because if you've got everything under control and you're doing everything correctly. The wind blows the wrong way and your face explodes. It's pretty dangerous. It would be especially dangerous to do while you were drunk. But still now it is spring-heeled jack fever and not just in the countryside, but in London too. So we're going to move on to talk about a couple of attacks. And these are the classic attacks from- Quote, unquote. Yeah. <laughs> um, a, a short string of events from 1837 to 1838. So the second one was five days after Jane's attack, and again, it was in the east end of London. The assailant knocked on the door of a house, and when a servant boy came to the door to open it, Jack frightened him so much that he started screaming his head off, and Jack was forced to get out of there before anybody heard. The third classic attack was when Lucy Scales and her sister were walking home from their brother's butcher shop down Green Dragon Alley, which sounds very Harry Potter. They're ambushed, and the assailant shoots blue flames and then flees. And this story doesn't gain as much attention as Jane's for some reason, but I think it's a pretty good one. Possibly because Lucy was—Jane uh, was the daughter of a pretty well-off family, Lucy less so. So at this point, we enter the copycat stage, and you have angry men calling themselves, bring, you know, just standing up in the bar and saying, I'm Spring-Heeled Jack, and attacking women, and boys dressing up as Jack to play pranks on each other. Some men are arrested, but people are also so obsessed by the story by now and frightened, frightened of it, that nearly any mystery assault gets added to Jack's rap sheet. So it doesn't matter if it doesn't exactly follow the pattern for what we've what we've seen. 
If it's mysterious, it must be Springheel Jack. When it goes on for years and years, his name is associated with later attacks in the Midlands, in the home counties, in Middlesex, in Peckham and Sheffield, and famously in Aldershot in 1877, which is where a British army camp was stationed. And that's where he would lay his chill hand over an isolated sentry's face and then bound off on giant springs. So apparently he's gone from fire-breathing to Chill hands. Chill hands sounds super And again, this is nearly 40 years later. Yeah. So it's extremely, I mean, I think we can discount that there would be one person carrying out all these attacks. That would be pretty ridiculous. But the last major Springheel Jack appearance occurs in 1904 in Liverpool. And he's more athletic than ever. I mean, he's practically flying by this point. He has better springs. (laughs) Springs have improved considerably over the decades. And the account of this appearance is really sketchy. I think there had been rumors of a poltergeist in the neighborhood before. So everybody's on edge, I guess. So the legend begins to fade away after this. There's, you know, if there's something scary and fishy going on in your village, you're no longer so inclined to blame it on Springheel Jack. You might just go with a plain garden variety poltergeist. It's It's the boogeyman, whoever. So what happened? We've got to look at this from a few different angles. One, was Jack just a convenient boogeyman to blame for weird events happening in the 19th century? Weird stuff happens. You have this convenient scapegoat. Did opportunistic hoaxers and genuine criminals seize this M.O. of 1837 Jack and make this rumor real? So you have all this gossip, and then you take on the costume and the conveniently pre-prepared crime. You can go do whatever you want. Or did an original Jack terrorize the London area in 1837 and 8 before giving way to these lesser copycats over the next few decades? So according to the Oxford Dictionary National Biography, folklorists usually assume that Springhill Jack was just a combination of two urban legends. And there was one legend among the servants and the working classes, and that was Jack was real. He was a supernatural monster. So, like, he really was the devil or a ghost or whatever appearing in disguises. Among the more educated people, there was a legend that it was a gentleman's wager, and there was this gang of well-off men with access to costumes and transportation and money, and they had made some sort of sick bet with each other to go around and try to frighten people out of their senses. There was even a suspect for this theory, the very rakish Henry de la Poore Beresford, who's the Marquess of Waterford. And he's still regarded by some people as the chief suspect for the original 1837 to 1838 string of attacks, because he certainly would have had the resources. And again, it's possible that the lack of concrete information in rural areas from late 1837 comes from some sort of cover-up. Cover-up the nobleman. Maybe the first string of attacks ended because there was pressure put on the police not to investigate any further. Or no, he was just getting... It was getting too risky to keep on doing this. The police couldn't be expected to cover it up anymore. Or he fulfilled his... His, uh, his bet, the and he bet. was all done after those classic attacks. Exactly. And the magazine Folklore, unsurprisingly, takes up this same position. I mean, it's called Folklore, after all, um, that Jack was just a rumor and part of this 
hysterical panic. He shouldn't be associated with any one person because he was a product. He wasn't a real flesh and blood man. But the research of the historian Mike Dash forces us to look at Jack a little more closely and consider a few different angles. He spent most of his working life researching the Jack mystery, and his research has exposed some of the most notable secondary sources on Jack as being nearly complete fiction. So two famous Jack stories, that of the 1837 attack on the servant Polly Hill by a man she recognized as the pop-eyed gentleman who propositioned her earlier in the day, seems made up. And Sarah was saying that was notable because um, a rakish Henry was known for being pop-eyed. And another, the attack and murder of prostitute Maria Davis in 1845, also seems entirely fictional and has no contemporary evidence to back it up. So instead of relying on these obviously questionable secondary sources of literature, Dash has poured through records and newspaper entries from around the country, from not just the Times, but all over the English countryside, even from the U.S., because there are other similar events happening here at the same period in time. So instead of relying completely on some of this obviously sketchy secondary literature, Dash has instead tried to go to the primary sources as much as possible, which in this case, there's some records, but it's mostly newspapers just trying to figure out what the reporting suggests actually happened. And from his research, Dash has concluded that there were elements of reality and fiction in the case of Springheel Jack, which I think is an interesting way to look at it. So He's figured that there may have been a few jacks in the first string of attacks from 1837 through 1838, but the attacks on Lucy Scales and Jane Alsop were probably done by the same person. And that person was probably also the same one who was responsible for those mysterious 1837 attacks in the countryside. And after spring 1838, it was probably copycat jacks who were using this ruse to play hoaxes or occasionally to sexually assault women. So there's rumor and panic around this whole thing, but there's also a kernel of truth. So where there's smoke, there's fire. Yeah, we think. But he also discounts two surprisingly popular theories going back to that UFO idea. Yeah, so he's pretty sure Jack was not a UFO and he was not a supernatural ghost or devil. And Educated people at the time never really thought he was a ghost or a devil. Um, But over the years, people have claimed that Jack couldn't have been human because his talons, his fire breathing, his jumps would have been out of range for Victorian uh, science. Which sounds so funny to actually say to someone, no, talons, those are beyond Victorian technology. I know, it it does sound ridiculous, or fire breathing even. Uh, So Dash has, in his research, looking through all the papers, he's figured that jumping doesn't really have enough concrete evidence to back it up. It does seem, as, as you mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, that people started to take the name Springy Hill Jack, which was applied to this assailant for his agility. Yeah. They started to take it literally. Like he has actual springs hidden in the heels of his shoes or 
He has India rubber-soled shoes. She would think would make it pretty difficult to get around the countryside, actually. If you were actually wearing springs on your feet, I think it would be very difficult to not just wind up with a broken ankle and caught by the detectives. So if we take the springs out of the equation, you can say that the fire-breathing and the talons could easily have been produced in the 1830s. So if he did exist, we should assume that he was at least a man. man. Yeah. So I think it... It leaves it open to to you guys to think about it a little. You know, do you think he's a combination of an urban legend and some kernel of truth, or is it just an outright folk tale? Uh, I I do like this story because even if you are in the camp that assumes nothing happened, there's nothing real about it, you're forced to still examine the hysteria that's for real. That really did happen. Well, and it's it's just cool because ideas of, of ghosts and things. I remember watching Poltergeist in middle school and being completely terrified. Stories of the supernatural just, I mean, they go back forever. Well, yeah, ghosts like Jack have appeared long before 1837 and 1838. I mean, they just weren't attributed to Spring-Heeled Jack. And weird stuff happens. That we don't have an explanation for sometimes, even now, yeah. our science. Sometimes it has a basis in actual weird people. Sometimes it's just folks getting hysterical and worked up about something. Thanks so much for joining us on this Saturday. Since this episode is out of the archive, if you heard an email address or a Facebook URL or something similar over the course of the show, that could be obsolete now. Our current email address is historypodcast at iheartradio.com. Our old How Stuff Works email address no longer works. You can find us all over social media at Missed in History. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. <laughs> 